going through a series called The Peacemaking Church. And this is the fourth of eight messages total in that series. Uh, And we're going to be in Psalm uh, chapter 32 today. Those of you who like to check your watch during church recognize that we're running a little tight on time if we're going to get communion in here. Uh, But I'll have you out of here by no later than two, I promise. All right? (laughs) So... Uh, seriously, we've got a we've got a lot to go, go through today, but but I'll try to be as brief as I can. Uh, every year, a lot of us get in the habit of making resolutions around January one, right? And in fact, a lot of us we use the same list every year. We just never throw it away because it's the same stuff on it every year, right? Uh, lose weight, get more exercise, eat better, uh, schedule that colonoscopy. You know, whatever is on your list, right? <laughs> Uh, you've got all kinds of stuff that you're supposed to do this year that you, you go, okay, well, this year I'm really going to seriously read through my Bible in a year. And so, usually is where you usually make it to uh, Leviticus, which is where Bible reading plans go to die. It, or you make it maybe if you get through there, you get to Chronicles and that kills it completely. And, you know, and you just go, okay, well, next year. Next year, I'll make this happen. And the reason that we have the same list every year, a lot of times, is because we are making resolutions based on our own willpower, our own effort, our own determination. And that's what determines our success or failure. If we're a very disciplined person with a lot of willpower, a lot of times we have success on those things, or at least to some limited degree. If we have a little less willpower, a lot of times we dig out the same list and it's still just as good as it was, right? Uh, And the the difference is, is that what we need to succeed in our resolutions is God's grace. We need God's grace if we're ever going to really grow in holiness. And if we're ever really going to change, we need God's grace. And... Uh, On top of that, we can grow in happiness, believe it or not, as we depend on and trust in God's grace. And so we want to talk about how to be a happy, holy person today. And we're going to be in uh, Psalm chapter 32, which gives us some instruction on how to be a happy, holy person. All right? Um, A lot of times you don't hear happiness talked about in the uh, in the church very much, but happiness is something that God does want for you. And we're going to see how, how, that, how that is here. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night... Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. 
Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Now, our version of the Bible, or at least my version of the Bible anyway, uh, starts off with the word blessed. And we want to look at in what and for whom is the happiness that God promises us. Uh, David literally says they're not blessed, but happiness is, are this person's, whose what? Whose sins are forgiven. And he uses the plural, happiness is. I'm not even sure if that's an English word. Um, but he uses the plural there to, to, to tell us that this is the overflowing, profuse, um, abundant, too much to contain blessing from God that gives us happiness in our hearts. Uh, those who love God are reshaped by God's grace to us. And we, um, we have the ability to die to ourselves and gain life. That as we die in ourselves to become like Christ, God gives us happiness. And he makes us happy by giving us his holiness. Blessed or happinesses as he whose transgressions are forgiven. True happiness, David says, is forgiveness for transgression. What's transgression? Transgression is um, not so much the breaking of a thing as it is offending a person. In this case, God. That we have done something which has offended God. And the punishment for that, as we all know, is eternal alienation, separation from God in the place the Bible calls hell. But if you look here at what David says, he says, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And literally what it says when it uses the word forgiven there is that it's the idea of lifting our transgressions from us, like we're carrying this burden around on our shoulders. We're carrying this thing around, and God lifts it off of our back. And we feel blessed. We experience blessedness from God. David goes on, and he says, whose sins are covered. And the word here for sin has to do with, with missing the mark has to do with archery. Uh, some of you that have shot a bow and arrow before, maybe at camp or, or maybe uh, out of a tree stand, understand this concept that you missed the target. The deer was standing there or the target was lined up down there and you missed. Your arrow went <whistles> off to the side or low or over the back or something else, but you missed the target. And it's the idea when it says that we're covered, it's as if when we sin that we stand naked and exposed and humiliated before God based on what we have done, and he covers us. He clothes us with his holiness and his righteousness. And then David goes on, verse 2, he says, Whose sin the Lord does not count against him. And what he means by that is, is that, you know, it's, it's an accounting type term. That when we sin against God, that we incur a debt to him. And instead of saying, instead of God saying to us, you owe me for what you did. 
He doesn't count it against us anymore. By the way, that's one of the things that forgiveness means. That when you're in a relationship either with God or with a person and you either receive forgiveness or you grant forgiveness, that you don't count what they did against them anymore. Or, and I think it was uh, Clara Barton who was deeply hurt one time. And she was a Christian woman, understood her Bible. And somebody brought up an incident from years previous in her life. And she said back, you know, they said, hey, didn't that person do X and so to you? And she said something very beautiful and very biblical. She said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> okay. It's the idea of not counting someone's sin against them, not allowing it to affect your treatment of them, just as God does not allow his treatment of us to be affected. Um, but who, And who is this happiness for? Who has happiness as a real possession? A lot of people would say, well, Christians have happiness as a real possession. You know, after all, our, our, sins, are, our sins are covered. Our transgression is... Uh, forgiven, um, we, you know, our sin is not counted against us by God, but, but actually David is a little more specific here. He says it's not just those who believe, but it's those who confess. It's the confessing Christian who has true happiness. Um, David is not talking here about new converts He's not talking about when you get to the point in your life, as, as hopefully all of us have, of recognizing our sin before God and our guilt and saying to him, Father, forgive me for what I have done. I trust in Jesus Christ to cover over my sin and to take it away from me and welcome me into your family. That's a wonderful thing. But that's not what David is talking about. He's talking about people who already possess that level of forgiveness because confession is something we need to do on, not just on an initial basis as we come to Christ, but every day as we come to Christ. And to experience real happiness and joy in our relationship with God, we have to be confessing Christians. And David talks, the whole point of this, this psalm is to talk about an incident in David's life when he didn't confess as a believer. Uh, so I want to look at verse 3 here. Uh, David's going to draw this incident in for us. Uh, he talks about the deceit of concealed sin here in verse 3. Uh, he says, look here. Uh, happiness is not just the possession of the person who's been forgiven once, but of the person in whose spirit is no deceit. in whose spirit is no deceit. That's verse 2. He says, look here. Uh, if you confess, then the Lord will forgive you. And when you forgive, you can stand, in a sense, uh, without any kind of hiddenness in your relationship with God. A lot of us, you know, we confess our sin, but we kind of do so in a general way. We say, uh, God, I didn't do very good today, and um, I'm really sorry. And would you forgive me? And we cover up and cover over some of the things that we've done 
Um, all believers continue to sin. And in fact, there may even be someone sitting out here right now who is living kind of like David was living, who has an area of secret sin, something hidden that they haven't admitted either to God or to anyone else, maybe not even to themselves. And think about what David would have been doing. He would have been going to worship. He would have been maybe writing psalms, maybe some that are included in our Bible. And yet he was being deceitful in his relationship with God. And so he says, you're blessed if you have no deceit in your relationship with God. And what you see is that as that goes along, when you, when you keep silent like this, it has an effect on you. It starts to affect your body. It starts to affect your spirit. Uh, it's, this, isn't, this isn't the misery that we experience when we sin. It's the misery that we experience when we cover up our sin. And, in, and, and he's, going to, he's going to draw in for us, what are, the, what are the consequences of covering up your sin, of keeping silent? What are the consequences of keeping silent? On June 1984, the Boston Globe reported on the tragic drowning of an eight-year-old boy whose name was Chris. He drowned in eight feet of water while he was hunting for golf balls at a local country club. And he had three friends with him, and they, they told the story they told was, well, he was doing fine, and, um, and he went, he dove down for some golf balls and so forth, and he just never came up, and we don't really know what happened. He just drowned. And so the case was never really investigated. And about three years went by, and there were some interesting things that began to happen. Uh, one boy started crying all the time and had to start sleeping with his mother. Uh, one boy started hearing voices and seeing visions and was committed to a hospital for emotionally disturbed children. And a third, who was about 18 years old, uh, was fired from his job because he would stay home from work because he felt angry and disgusted about telling a lie to protect a friend. And over time, the, all these boys began to experience emotional instability and difficulty dealing with life. And all of a sudden, the truth came out. What had happened is, is that they had watched their friend drown and had done nothing about it and hadn't tried to rescue him. They had just watched him die. And eventually, one of the boys was charged with manslaughter. And the consequences of concealing the truth had eaten them alive from the inside. And David is talking about a similar incident because it, this, is, this is a psalm that I think recalls David's sin with Bathsheba where he kept silent for about 15 months. Uh, or I, I'm sorry, no, about nine months rather, Okay. About nine months, he's, he sinned with Bathsheba. Uh, he arranges to have Uriah killed in battle. Uh, then the baby is born, and after an appropriate, I mean, the baby, the baby is born after David has already married the woman, and, you know, people kind of go, well, you know, it's kind of close on the date, but, you know, you know, I mean, David, 
David's the king, you know. Uh, he's a virile guy. I'm sure that that just all was just the way it happened. And then along comes Nathan to confront him in his sin. He and he has nine months where he lives with his guilt and his sin covering, covered up and not telling anybody until Nathan the prophet confronts him. And these this chapter is about uh, what I would call the inner rooms of our life. A lot of times... You know, we when we have friends over, you know, they call you and they say, hey, we're in town, you know, we're going to be there in like 20 minutes. Is that okay? You know, and everybody does that flight of the bumblebee around the house, you know, fluffing stuff and find a closet, you know, start throwing stuff in, right? And 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 we, we greet them at the door and we say, we say, oh, hey, man, I'm sorry, the house is a mess, the house is a mess, you know, but come in, we're so glad to see you, you know, and instead of being honest with them and saying, look, this is the close, the cleanest our house has been in like 10 years, okay? <laughs> um, and we spend a lot of time on, on kind of the landscaping, the front yard of our life, right? So that we all look presentable. And we don't take that friend, as dear as they might be, back into the inner rooms where we have crammed everything, right? And what David is encouraging us to do is to go back into the inner rooms of our hearts and clean out all the stuff we have crammed in there. So that we're not just presentable on the outside, but holy on the inside. And he talks here about the consequences of keeping silent. He says, physical destruction is a consequence. My bones wasted away. He starts to actually get sick, physically sick, over covering up his sin. Uh, he has a conscience that plagues him, my groaning all day long. You know, he, he says he has a sense of God's displeasure at his actions. He says, your hand was heavy on me. He has depression. He says, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And David has been concealing his sin. But he knows and God knows and he's miserable. He's miserable. So how does God bring true happiness to believers? Um, to begin with, I think the Lord always convicts us of our sin two ways, through the, through the Spirit and through His Word. The Lord runs after us. He catches us. He pursues us. And He wants us to change. And so through the Spirit and through His Word, He tells us, look, this is what is wrong with your life. Excuse me, this is what's going on here. You need to confess this to me. And he does that by his Holy Spirit in our hearts and, and through his word. Uh, hopefully, sometimes as I stand up here and preach and as I share God's word uh, with you and with me, uh, the Holy Spirit knocks on the door of your heart and says, uh, boy, this is an area that needs adjusted. This is an inner room that needs cleaned out. Uh, that's, part of, that's part of my job is to present the word of God faithfully that we all might change, right? Uh, through the Spirit and God's Word, He brings change. And, and as we are convicted, hopefully we have confession, real confession, where we really admit what we really did. And we can have our transgression lifted and our sin covered and not counted against us by God anymore. And there are really there are three categories of sin that you get into. There's, there's what I would call, first of all, secret sin. 
which is the sin that you do that nobody else knows about. Maybe it's something in your mind. Uh, maybe it's something in, a, in terms of an attitude. Maybe it's something uh, that you said out loud but nobody else heard <laughs> or something like that. And that's something that you can address just between you and God. Another category is private sin. Private sin is between you and another person, but it's just, or you and another few people. But it's not widely known. It didn't affect a whole group of folks. And you need to deal with that between you and whomever you've offended. And then the last category is public sin. Or maybe you've done something that has hurt your entire company. Or you've done or said something that has hurt an entire church. Or you've done or said something that's hurt your entire family. It's public. It's out there. And everybody in that particular group knows about it. And in that case, you need to go before the entire group and say, I was wrong. And the, the context of the sin needs to determine the context of the confession. David is excited. He says, you forgave my sin. Verse 5, you forgave my sin. It's God's forgiveness that gives us, it's the conduit of God's grace to us. And he spends the rest of the whole chapter telling of how excited he is and how wonderful it is to be forgiven by God. To be totally cleansed of everything that he has done. Uh, God lifts our transgressions. He covers our sin and our, our exposure before him. And he reckons us as, what, even though we were crooked, he reckons us as being straight. Even though we were wrong, he considers us right before him. That's a wonderful thing, to be totally forgiven. Um, you know, I was talking about concealed sin this morning because I, I don't know about you, but I am a practiced sin hider. I have a wonderful ability to get put on the who me look when somebody says something to me. Hey, when you did X, you hurt me. Me? Not, not I. Moi? <laughs> right? Uh, and we are reluctant to admit, even to ourselves, that we could have done anything that would be sin, that would have hurt that other person or would have offended God. And so I want to just, uh, just... Have you joined with me here? We need to make some new resolutions. I know it's not January, okay? But a new resolution to confess our sins and to encourage others to do the same and to forgive other people when they sin against us. To confess our own sin, to encourage others to do the same, and to forgive those who sin against us, right? Because as we've seen in this series, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from other people in light of the fact that God has forgiven us. Right? Don't have that right. Uh, just one, one quick comment here as I close. Sometimes we have the inability, because we have concealed our sin for so long, to really see it for what it is. And David needed Nathan, the prophet, 
to come alongside him and tell him that little story? You know, David has this happen a number of times in his life where somebody comes and they tell him a story, and yet he's a little slow on the uptake on catching on to what people are doing when they start doing that. Nathan tells him this story, and then he ends with, David, you are the man in the story. And David is all of a sudden cut to the heart. And we need sometimes people to come alongside us and help us to identify our sin and to hold us accountable for making restitution and confessing and seeking forgiveness for it. And so I just want to challenge you as, um, as we close and as we are getting ready to take communion. This is a great message, right? before communion, actually. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians that it's because of your concealed, unconfessed sin that many of you are sick and some are weak and some have fallen asleep. Christian term for died. Not confessing our sin is a dangerous, dangerous thing. It's not only dangerous to us spiritually, it can even be dangerous to us physically. Um, But you may need a Nathan to come into your life and to confront you and say, this is an area you need to fix. And if so, uh, I'd encourage you to, to do what I have tried to do, which is to take the rebuke and to confess your sin and to seek restitution. So let's pray, and then we'll take communion together.